Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Imagine you want to grow some healthy food for your family and friends and order somehow, I don't know, I know it sounds weird, 50 chickens. Through Facebook, you sell them and uh, sell them all actually very fast. And you do the next batch and the next batch and it's getting a bit out of control. So soon you're doing 600 birds a week. But of course, you're running into trouble. You're selling quite a lot to chefs and, and you're, the sales part is not the issue. Uh, but you're very dependent on an expensive feed, broilers, processing, slaughter. And then you take a very difficult decision. You sell your, at the time, the largest pasture-raised chicken company in the U.S., says more about the sector than about this company, uh, to one of the largest chicken producers in the world. Yes, it's family-owned, this one, but it still does $8 billion in revenue. It's a very large organic producer, but has also 21,000 employees and is definitely not pasture-raised. So what happens next? Many can guess this because we've seen it so many times before. The founder leaves the company as soon as he can or she can. The senior management does the same. The big corporate takes over and starts to cut costs, downgrade the practices, and basically the long way down starts. But in this case, that didn't happen. The founder is still there. We talked to him today. The impact has been enormous. Millions of birds are raised on pasture every year because of this accident sale. And of course, it's not been without downsides. We covered them as well in the interview. But overall, it seems like it had a net positive outcome. A very successful, one of the few exits in general in the regenerative space. So we dive deep into the positive impact of chickens. Can they ever be regenerative? We still have a long way to go. The impact on degraded farmland, replacing fossil fuel and toxic fertilizer. Uh, of course, the nutrient density of pasture-raised birds and one of the biggest exits in the space. Enjoy. What are the connections between healthy farming practices, healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut and healthy people? Welcome to a special series where we go deep into the relationship between regenerative agriculture practices that build soil health and the nutritional quality of the food we end up eating. We unpack the current state of science, the role of investments, businesses, nonprofits, entrepreneurs, and more. We're very happy with the support of the Grantham Foundation for the protection of the environment for this series. The Grantham Foundation is a private foundation with a mission to protect and conserve the natural environment. Find out more on granthamfoundation.org or in the links below. Welcome to another episode, today with the founder of PastureBird. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me, Con. I'm excited. There is so much to unpack here, but let's start for anybody. Of course, I'll put a link below and, and other interviews you've done as well, but just for People, this is an, an audio medium, so let's let's try to talk visually. Um, let's get into what is PastureBird first, and then we get into your journey. What what is PastureBird? We're currently recording May twenty twenty three. I don't think it's changing that much. But uh, if you had to at a dinner party, somebody asks, "What do you do exactly, Paul?" and then you had to in between in between the dishes and in between the the, um, the different plates, explain it. What do you what do you normally say? Yeah, so so in the grand scheme of things, we're a very small um, poultry company, and we're a, we're probably the world's largest pasture-raised chicken company. So we we operate in this very weird sort of in be, in between space. But our secret sauce is all around um, raising broilers, so meat chickens outside on pasture 
and uh, moving them to fresh pasture every single day. Um, the birds are allowed to forage and, you know, pick and scratch for bugs and worms and also um, heal degraded cropland. So that's, that's kind of what we're into. And we sell chicken as a byproduct. And so the service is regeneration. And how did you get into that space? Um, because it's not that you can tap into a family history company of uh, pasture pasture bird at scale because it just wasn't there. Like at some point you, you um, with, with other people obviously, but you, you created that. What made you create the world's largest pasture raised bird company on the planet? It was a, um, I'm a city kid born and raised in Seattle, Washington. And uh, I, I went into the Marine Corps after college and I contracted Lyme disease during sniper school and um, started having a bunch of health problems. And my family wanted to eat better and we were looking for organic produce and pasture-raised meats and we could kind of find almost everything except for pasture-raised chicken in our area. So on a whim, ordered 50 chickens for our backyard just for ourselves, like as a little hobby. But and, uh, because it was the minimum 50, because otherwise you do 10 or something just to I see don't know them. why them alive. 50. That's actually, yeah, it's a great question. For some reason, <laughs> Sounds like uh, a lot. the story actually goes, we were joking around about getting some chickens for the backyard. Um, and my brother-in-law took it seriously, left the room for about 10 minutes and came back and he said, Hey, I ordered those 50 chickens that you guys were talking about. And we said, what are you talking about? We weren't talking about really ordering those, you know? And, uh, yeah, 50 came, we, we were big, um, fans of what Joel Salatin does in Virginia here in the U S and, um, we followed kind of his daily move, you know, covered principles from scratch. And it was never meant to really be a business. It was just a hobby for our family. But one thing led to another and, and it blossomed into what it is today. But I mean, there are a few steps there. And how did you stumble upon the Joe Salatin of this world? And, and because that's, I mean, Michael Pollan made him pretty famous with the Omnivore Dilemma, but still you, you were going deep into the health side and, and somehow went into that specific part of the health side, animal protein, et cetera. You could also take another exit. Um, totally. Do you remember how you like why the protein side became so important to you? Yeah. So, so like you, uh, my family was interested in Alan Savory's stuff before he was what he is today following the Ted talk and all that. So my father-in-law um, has been a general contractor pretty much his whole life, but he always wanted to raise cattle and he had read Savory's stuff since the 1980s. And uh, he always had these weird books laying around and nobody really knew what he was doing in, in his uh, office and, reading all this weird stuff. And um, I think we probably saw Omnivore's Dilemma, started to connect the dots that, well, this stuff is the same stuff that my father-in-law, Tom, has been talking about for so many years. And uh, it kind of just, it just connected the two. And then, okay, how do you go from 50 to, how many chickens are you raising, more or less? I mean, you're, you're part of a much bigger company, which we'll talk about later. I don't know how much you can disclose, but it's safe to say you added a few zeros. Um, how do you go from 50 to that? Yeah, we're, we're raising millions of birds um, per year now. You know, I, I wish it was this beautiful linear path where everything Lots was planned out. We had a 10-year plan. It wasn't, it wasn't at all. Um, we had a few breakthroughs. So that 50 birds, which was meant for our family, um, we essentially listed them out on Facebook and kind of offered them up to friends and family. And all 50 sold out. So then the next time... We decided to do a hundred and then after that, 200 and then after that, you know, 400. Where, where did you raise and, them? Like how big is your backyard? Because you wanted to move them regularly because that's what you read. Like, 
yeah. need quite a bit of space. Yeah. My wife and I were living in Newport Beach. I was working as a CPA and I was uh, in grad school doing my MBA, but her her parents had a small place out in the country. So they had about, uh, I would call it a quarter acre backyard. So maybe a, a large backyard, but definitely not a farm. Um, but it was enough space to do like one, you know, two Joel Salatin style coops and move those every single day. Um, and then our big, our big breakthrough probably came in 2013, 2014, when the LA Lakers, which is a really um, influential basketball team out here, Kobe Bryant was on the team and some of these guys, they reached out um, because they wanted our protein for their players meals. And they sent their team chefs out kind of this whole thing. And we got to start working with the Lakers. And then right after that, the LA Dodgers, which is our big baseball team out here. And that just, it's not that the orders were huge, but it really gave us this like vote of confidence that what we were doing was impactful and, um, and we wanted to scale. Because at that point you already incorporated, you were an official company. You were not doing this only for family and friends anymore. Yeah, it had gone beyond, but it, we, we didn't, you know, in 2014, we quit our jobs. We moved into this little 1700 square foot house. There was like nine of us living in this little three bedroom house. And we said, we're just going to put everything on the table reinvest all the profit that we can and try to try to grow this thing. Um, so I think that that, that contract with the two pro sports teams really like gave us the confidence to go for it. And then you could have gone down the route of very high end. I mean, let's say not too automated and, and all of that, but you didn't, you definitely like, when did the let's regenerate, um, um, let's say, hurt farmland and have chickens as a byproduct. When did that come into play? Because that's not the backyard of your family-in-law. Like that's a different, that's a different mindset. Okay. Let's go into very big fields. You can see it on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. You can see it on, on, um, on the website as well. This is a different, uh, almost, almost a different company or a different approach. Uh, it developed, I think over time, I didn't grow up in agriculture, so I didn't even know a lot of the problems that existed in ag. And as we dove in and we started to study and understand, um, the whole thing with the crop fields really came because uh, raising monogastric, we have a lot of grain inputs into our system. So we buy a lot of, you know, monocrop um, corn and soybeans that feed our system. I said, well, this can't really be regenerative as long as we're buying all these off farm inputs, that doesn't really make sense. So then um, the mindset started to become, well, how could we eventually produce our own grains in this like circular system in a regenerative way? And um, the other thing that happened is we just, you know, I didn't come up with money. Nobody in my family came up with money and we were raising this small scale, very niche product, selling to people like the Lakers and the Dodgers and, you know, wealthy people around Southern California. And it was just this weird feeling like my parents couldn't have afforded what we're producing right now. And how are you really going to move the needle and change the world if you're basically producing food for rich people? And um, it became really this like interesting confluence of wanting to impact large scale monocrops and heal these croplands and also bring down the cost of nutrient dense, you know, pasture poultry. And we started to develop this idea of like, I think this space needs scale um, in order to be like viable. And then do you remember bringing out the birds for the first time on, on one of those fields? And, and how did that go? Because of course, the size needs to be different than your typical Salatin style, like chicken caravan. Like, uh, was did you contact the farmer? Did the farmer contact you? Is that like, I have, an, I have a service to offer? Or how did that even start? 
Yeah. So we, we had probably leased six different farms. You know, we didn't have any money again. So we weren't going out and buying land or anything like that. We were just always looking for good places to lease. And I remember driving by this old potato field that was about 40 minutes from where we were farming. And I, I looked out and it was just this dusty old field. You could tell it was just devoid of life and it had been fumigated and, you know, all the different chemicals had been sprayed on it for the last 50 years. And the agent that I was with said, oh, that's this old, you know, historic potato family out here in Southern California. He said, don't, don't really bother calling. There's nothing going on here. You know, you're not going to get this spot. And I said, ah, I'm just going to give it a try. Found the phone number, called him up. And as fate would have it, and this has happened many times throughout our business, just as kind of lucky breaks or God's looking out for us, you know, and they said, uh, you know, it's funny you called right now. Um, we decided not to plant potatoes anymore. And we just wanted to look for somebody to lease the land from us. And I mean, this, this field, the first day we got out there, your boot, you know, when you step into this sandy, dusty field, the, your boot would drop like 12 inches into the soil or dirt is really what it was. But are you scared Even to after, put your, your chickens into that? Like, just yeah, for sure. Well, not only that, because it's kind of hard to call it pasture raised chicken when it's just a bunch of dirt, you know, and uh, it took several years before we could add cattle in because it was just little weeds, you know, popping up here and there. And it was really hard to get anything going. Uh, they had not farmed that field for a couple of years. So it wasn't like we we're putting them onto toxic chemicals or anything like that, but they had been definitely disking it and tilling it for um, several years before we got there. So there wasn't much soil life left. It was actually less than 1% organic matter. And we started putting the birds on, rotating them, moving them. You know, in hindsight, this stuff sounds really easy, but it's like, it just took many years to start to get that soil healthy. And now it's at almost 4% organic matter. I mean, this year we have grass like waist high. We added a lot of cattle to help manage the ground because the chickens really don't like very tall grass. So we use the cattle as a, uh, as a lawnmower system. And it's just this beautiful, complex, dynamic ecosystem with a bunch of, you know, deer and birds and coyotes and snakes. And there's so many pollinators out there. And we have resident bald eagles on the farm. And it's like this really, you know, flourishing um, habitat. So it's been it's been really fun. To How many years that is that? And did go. you end up buying that, or did you do it for for this old potato family? Did it for the potato family, man. And it's a uh, that leads into you know, what's coming next for me and stuff that I'm focused on next is just, uh, it's, it's hard to do regenerative when it's on leased land, because I just provided millions of dollars of ecosystem services that I paid for, you know, it's like, wait, why am I paying for this? Uh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but in a lease model, um, that's just the way it goes. So it was over the course of about seven or eight years. So you lease the land. So how, what, how does the pasture bird model works these days? Like, how do you, how do you operate? How do you find the land? How do you integrate within rotations of, of the farms and farmers you work with? And, and then we unpack the other stuff you're working on, of course. Yeah. So, um, there's probably two models or maybe three models in operation. Now we've moved everything from California to Georgia to help with cost. Um, the cost of farming in California is just ridiculously high. I think it's probably on par with some, some things you see in Europe. Um, so we've moved everything to Georgia where the, the cost is a lot more competitive. 
we have probably um, the model where we own the land, we own the coops, we manage everything. We call that like a company farm. We also have more of like a contract farming model where we would put our coops onto um, another farmer's land and they would manage um, the coops. So there still are chickens, it's our feed, um, but they would actually manage the coops on their land. And so you could see like a row cropping model where these guys are integrating on say a hundred acres out of their thousand acres of row crop and they're putting it in just like a crop rotation where they'll put, you know, a corn crop or a soybean crop into pasture for three years, five years, they'll graze the birds on it. Um, and then they'll move it to another field later on in a true rotation with row crops or a hay model, which is pretty popular in Georgia where they're growing hay, um, for cattle and they can actually stack the poultry right onto that hay field. Um, both models are really cool. I don't like have a preference necessarily on either one, but they're definitely these ecosystem services model where um, you're getting a lot of fertility from the monogastric animals. And then of course we add in the cattle as well. And, and you touched upon the feed <clears throat> to be before as well. Like how have you tried to make that as, as circular, as regenerative as possible? And, and what are still exciting ways to, to push that further? Because of course, as for they are not ruminants, which means they need they need input, and and many people forget that. Like the feed part is is very important, especially in these times yeah. as well with crazy prices. Like what what have you been doing there to reduce that as much as possible or not be so vulnerable? Yeah, try to be as transparent as possible. And I, I I'm kind of the first one to say like monogastric is so hard to do regenerative, and I think there's this misconception that like we're right there with the cattle guys. No, I would say cattle are much farther along on being truly regenerative like whole system regenerative we're doing some really important regenerative stuff on farm as far as the grains you know the best that we've kind of gotten to is sourcing locally trying to find farmers that are doing cover crops and doing some no-till which is probably 25 percent of our feed supply right now but we've got a long ways to go before i would call this system kind of full-scale regenerative because of the feed sourcing piece. It's just, it's, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement still there. And then on the nutrient side, because you've shared some very interesting uh, data on, on LinkedIn and other places. Um, but you're also saying we're very early. Does that mean also those two systems like hay versus the other one, do you see differences there? Or you're also saying like maybe a nutrient density, we are super early still because we have so much more space to go in terms of, of, different feed other types uh, other quality etc or or like wh where do you feel we are sorry it's not a very concrete question where do you feel we are in terms of nutrient density because you have been quite vocal about it yeah i mean i would say yes to everything that you just asked like on the hay side it's unbelievable when you see where the chickens have gone i mean you could see this dark green lush strip of grass behind where the chickens grazed and then in addition to that the the contract the partner that we um are doing the hay and poultry business with um, he was using synthetic chemical fertilizer to grow his hay crop before and he's been able, to, been able to completely wean himself off of the synthetic input and just use the chickens to fertilize his field and so it's like i don't know i don't have answers to exactly what that does for nutrient density but i can imagine when you wean off of chemical inputs and you turn on you know naturals and biologicals like fresh chicken manure um, spread in like a very responsible way that's got to do something for the nutrient density of that grass that you're going to go back and feed to the cattle. It also does a big, it, do, it does a big service to his bottom line because instead of spending, um, 
for chemical fertilizer. We're paying him now to raise poultry for us. So it's a big win for him economically, you know, on the nutrient density side with the poultry, we have been able to study this. Um, I would say in depth, but there's still a lot more to go. So we work with HRI labs and also several other labs to look at the difference of our chicken compared to like a barn raised bird or organic bird or an outdoor access or, you know, what I call like fake pasture raised chicken, which is getting pretty popular here in the U S now. Um, and it's, it's pretty astounding. You know, you talk about like omega threes, vitamin A, vitamin E, um, a lot of your micronutrients supplement kind of stuff that people would take. It's, it's shockingly higher between 50% higher and sometimes 12 times higher in a lot of key, um, vitamins and micronutrients. The hard thing with the nutrient density piece is how do you convey that to consumers in a way that they understand and it makes sense to them in a quick retail environment? I think that's where I'm still trying to wrap my head around how to how to really explain that to people, you know? Yeah, because that we'll unpack that in a bit. But um, you're, so where do the chickens go to? Uh, in a sense, you're selling retail. You're, you say, we, we grow millions of birds. So this is not a small operation. This is not you every Saturday on a farmer's market or right. through Facebook selling it to friends. Um, so how did that happen? And, and then like, it explains why you have a few seconds in the supermarket shelf and, and a bit of packaging to, to explain that incredibly complex story. Um, mm -hmm. But let's get to how do you get in supermarkets to begin with? We actually cut our teeth originally in um, direct you know, delivery and farm pickup. So back in 2012 to 2015, we would organize meetup spots and we would drive all over Southern California, hand delivering. Uh, I mean, we had chicken, beef, pork, um, you know, wild fish, honey, classic sort of like CSA style model. And as great as that was, and actually that business still exists today. That's called Primal Pastures. It's a business that we're really proud of. And my family still owns and operates. It felt like if we wanted to have a bigger impact, we needed to focus on something that we thought we could do a good job with. So we said, all right. You, you were still you know. selling to rich people. Yeah. Yeah. And we did this thing, you know, SWOT analysis. So what can we do that nobody else can do? We looked at our climate. We looked at land prices here in Southern California, kind of processing availability. And we came back to all these reasons why we felt like we could really make a dent with poultry. Um, and so we started to really focus on the poultry side. We raised some money um, on the poultry side. And we went right into the restaurant business because we didn't understand retail. We didn't have the money for packaging and shelf space and all these different things. So we just started working with a bunch of really high-end um, chefs around Southern California and they loved the product and we were able to do it at a price where they could make it work. And we would go in, we would, you know, hand deliver to the first, maybe 10 restaurants. And then we started picking up some distributors more or less because they got mad. We, we were taking some of their business. And so these distributors came in and they said, Hey, let us distribute your product. And that took us up to like, I would say like 3000, almost 6,000 chickens per week, which is a sizable. I mean, that's already the biggest pasture raised chicken business in the US, 6,000. And they love it for flavor, I can imagine. Like the it was chefs, all flavor. That's what they search for. You talk to a chef about nutrient density and they'll literally fall asleep, you know, while you're in their office. So it's like you only talk about flavor and you demo the product and story. They, they care about the story and the local piece and all that. Um, and it was really a healthy restaurant business for us up until like 2019, 2020, when the whole world pretty much took a crap, you know, 
And um, we always wanted to be in retail. We, we always felt like our customer is really in retail in the mid to high end grocery. That's where they want to you know, shop it. That's where they really care about it. And so after the partnership with Purdue, that's what really unlocked retail for us. And we've been probably 95% retail ever since 2020. And, and Purdue came in, there was a, an exit came in because of COVID that already happened before, or, or was it, I mean, I'm not saying forced, but of course restaurants closed. Um, but how did that, that come about? Because there are not so many exits we can look at, let's say in the region, in the region space. Now we were, we were incredibly fortunate with our timing. We closed the deal with Purdue in November of 2019. So it was just Perfect before time. the whole world went insane. And I don't know what would have happened if that would have been delayed another three months. I, I have a feeling we'd be having a different conversation today. Um, the thing with Purdue really started in 2015 when we raised um, some angel groups. And we were out kind of doing these business plan competitions and trying to um, refine our business model, but also win some grant money. Um, we had a group from a local angel organization as a judge for one of those business plan competitions that said, Hey, you really ought to come and present to our angel group. And uh, we felt like we weren't really ready yet, but we thought it would be good practice. So we went and we showed um, our deck to this group of maybe a hundred angels. And they were really interested in what we were talking about with scaling, you know, regenerative egg and scaling um, this poultry model. And nobody in the room had any ag experience at all. So they just, you know, it was more or less like very confusing to them. Um, but we ended up with uh, an offer from them about three months later um, for a seed check, pre-revenue kind of seed check. And uh, we ended up doing the deal with them in 15. And then kind of, I would say we never really got to a proper Series A, but it was seed, you know, a little bit of seed plus, a little bit of debt financing. And I'm happy to go into more of that. We probably raised like a total of $2 million total something like that because there's quite a bit of working capital in the birds and the coops and the tech and and yeah Yeah, it really is i mean on the field yeah Yeah. in 2018 we realized that we're not going to have a big impact as an independent poultry company because we don't have our own hatchery we don't have our own slaughterhouse we don't have our own trucks we're missing all of these really expensive capital intensive parts of the business so it'd be it'd be far more effective for us to try to partner with somebody who has all that rather than try to raise 50 to a hundred million dollars and build all that um, ourselves. Was it a difficult um, decision joining, let's say one of the big poultry companies that let's say in many cases that don't operate the way you do or would like them to do. I think it was probably like one of the hardest decisions um, of my life, you know, for the first four years of our business, I mean, if you would ask me out, I said, big ag is the whole problem. It's the devil. I mean, every, everybody in there is bad. You know, I would have said like only bad things about it. As I got farther and farther into it, I think I came to the realization that, um, A, people are people. So the people inside of these organizations are actually probably goodwilled people that mean well. And, and uh, we may see the world a little bit different, but I don't think that they're inherently like, you know, evil people or something like that. And B, if we want to leave it better, if these big ag companies are genuine about wanting to do things differently, um, we should welcome the opportunity to help them kind of shift the kind of tack the boat or tack the Titanic, if you will. And so when we got the opportunity to start talking to Purdue in 2018, 
I was really skeptical. I thought they were just trying to steal our IP and um, probably go out and, and, and fake it or something. But and the that, better we got to know them. Fake Yeah. Yeah. And they easily could have done that, to be honest. That's what a lot of companies are doing right now. It's a sort of a stationary houses with outdoor access and they call it pasture raised and they say it's regenerative or silvo pasture, all this stuff. And I thought there was a lot of honor in them coming to us and asking us how, you know, we think about doing this stuff at scale and taking us seriously. I thought that was pretty cool. They also had led the industry by example. So within the big ag space, Purdue was the first to remove antibiotics full tilt. Um, they were, they were, the first to really, or the largest player in certified organic uh, in our country, they were um, they they had acquired Nyman Ranch, which is a really well respected um, pork company that's well known for taking good care of their farmers and producing some really good pork. It's not regenerative and it's not pasture raised, and they don't pretend that it is, which I really respect. But they do some amazing things on the Nyman side, and then they also acquired um, uh, Panorama grass-fed meats, which is a certified organic, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished beef outfit um, here in the Western U.S. So because of all those things and getting to know their so executive team. So you team, called them. I mean, I imagine yeah, exactly. you called the name and you called the founders of Panorama just to understand like, okay, looking back a few years, are you happy with this? Exactly. And um, that was like a, it wasn't a, a check in the box. It was like, I really need to know, have they taken good care of this? Have they stewarded it well? You know? Are any of the original people still involved? And sure enough, you know, a lot of a lot of them were. And I think that that probably speaks volumes. A lot of times, you see these exits where the founders just want to disappear and go off and do their next thing. Uh, you saw a lot of these early type of people still involved in these business. I thought that was pretty meaningful to me. So how how has it changed? I mean, everything probably, but how has it changed since then? Like, what has it meant for for Pasture Bird? Apart from the fact that getting into retail in, in a time where retail was very important, but yeah, um, like. Describe the the A and B, the before and after. Well, I'll start by saying what hasn't changed, which I'm I'm really proud of. Um, the way that we're raising the birds has only improved since um, joining forces with Purdue. So a lot of people will say, "Oh, how do you maintain your integrity? How do you make sure they're not just going to take it and dumb down your standards and all that stuff?" We created a very very simple pass or fail model for pasture raise, and that's that every bird has to spend the majority of its life on pasture to be called pasture raised. And we built this whole protocol around it where it would be a violation of um, USDA principle for us to slap pasture raised on something that was not actually living on pasture for most of its life. It can't be a hundred percent of its life because chickens, you know, when they're baby chicks, they need climate control, they need brooding and all that stuff. So they can't be on pasture for the first couple of weeks, but um, minimum 51% of their life, recorded every single flock we record by a flock calculator um, and we mark every single day that they're on pasture or not and if that's not the majority of their life that's fine it's just not going to be sold as pasture raised so i feel like that very clear black and white standard um, has helped us a lot within purdue to make sure everybody's on the same page um, what has changed i would say retail's been an enormous learning curve for me um, it's been really cool to build a team. It's been really interesting to be part of this, you know, hundred year old historic poultry company where I can call some of the best conventional chicken people in the world. And I think the natural and regenerative and organic world often shuns the kind of conventional side and the conventional side often shuns the natural and, and regenerative side. 
And I think having this mutual respect and, um, and, you know, having some of these guys on speed dial where we can ask some of these more complicated technical questions. And actually they do have a lot to add, especially in something like brooding for us. Um, brooding is largely the same, whether you're doing it conventionally or regeneratively, you know, taking care of these little baby chicks, um, for the first couple of weeks, that was the hardest part of our business. Like once you get them up old enough to be on pasture and you're just moving them every day, to be honest, it gets a lot easier at that point. So having these experts within the company that we can call on a daily basis, it's like incredibly helpful. Yeah. So many more healthy birds out on pasture quicker, et cetera, et cetera. Processing, you know, um, the number one problem, as you know, um, with any protein business is the processing side. I always felt that we were one phone call away from being out of business. We had one processor, you know, when we're an independent poultry company, if suddenly he decided he didn't want to work with us anymore, or he felt like we were too big of a threat or a competitor, it was one phone call and we would have nowhere to bring 6,000 birds a week. That's an insanely risky place to be with, you know, 20 families that work for us and that's their sole income. And we're providing, you know, in payroll and all this stuff. So, being part of the company that owns the processing, like that's fully de-risked now. They're also one of the best processors in the world. Like they know what they're doing on the processing side. And so being able to work with these professionals, these people that have been in the processing game for 35, 40 years um, that have really led that space, like that's a game changer for us too. Um, And it's allowed us to put out much better products than we could before, you know. And what has been... Not so fun. Or what has been a, a downside of doing this? Apart from the critique, for sure, you're getting on social media, etc. But what has been the, the biggest downside? I should add one more positive. I mean, obviously the cost, right? So Purdue owns their own hatcheries, their own feed mills, their own slaughterhouses, their own logistics trucks. The amount of cost savings just from integrating like over day one, um, it was profound, you know? Something like just chicks alone, we would pay a dollar twenty-five, a dollar fifty per baby chick. That was cut, you know, by eighty percent on day one. It's stuff like that that's like, and I'm getting the same, you know, better quality probably um, from within Purdue within our own hatchery. So, it, and multiply that by everything else, it's it's profound. What's not so fun? Um, it's a big company, you know, twenty-six thousand employees. Nothing happens fast. I think in a startup environment, you can be very nimble. You can move really quickly. I could go out and raise money when I wanted it. Now, um, it's a whole team to change things. It takes time to move the needle, to get capital even from within the company. It's not an overnight thing. It's not just my decision anymore. It's like, nah, at the end of the day, we sold this to another company. So it's their thing now. Is I'm still super passionate about it, but it's not my uh, sole decision at the end of the day. And that's, that's good and bad, to be honest. I don't think that's all bad. Um, but that's been very different, you know? And so what's next? I mean, um, you're working on other project, but for Pasture Bird, like what are big other things? I see some tech updates every now and then on LinkedIn. Um, I definitely recommend following, following the updates, but what's, what are big breakthroughs happening at the moment or things you're excited about in the pasture-raised bird space? So in 2018, we started developing the automated range coop. That's a, our 6,000 bird system that moves um, 
moves chickens autonomously to fresh pasture every day. That was really a play towards scale so that we could build this template that we can hopefully take to, you know, millions of chickens a week. Um, our goal has always been 1 million chickens a week. And I really think the market's far bigger than that. So I think it can go well beyond, um, you know, there's 9 billion chickens harvested in the U.S. for meat every year. That's just in the U.S. I think that number is 60 billion worldwide. And is it because how's the market responded, like on retail, et cetera? How have people have picked up this this new slash new thing? Like how's the response been from consumers in the high middle to higher end range, what you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's on fire, you know? It's a, we're so sold out at the moment and um, consumers are understanding it and wanting it. And uh, as much as I kind of sit back here and I bitch about, fake pasture raised and all this stuff that's going on. Um, so uh, who needs that explanation of nutrient density, et cetera? You're like, people get it. Flavor. Uh, I think so, but it's also we're in medium to high end right now, and we're not going to be able to play there forever if we want to put up the numbers that I think are possible. Um, you are selling to early adopters right now that are yeah. already thinking about all this stuff. Luckily, pasture raised eggs have sort of paved, paved a path before us, and there's... Um, at least a billion dollars sold in pasture-raised eggs in the U.S. right now. How legit those are, you know, that's up that's up for debate probably. But people think that they're buying pasture-raised eggs, and so as a proxy pasture-raised chicken, it has not been very hard to sell so far. Um, what's next for us is just more. And, and so, retail, sorry to get know? back to the yeah to the to the automation, yeah. like the automation piece. Two thousand eighteen, you start working on this massive thing that moves by itself with six thousand chicks in it. And, and you're, are you getting there? Is, yeah, is it it's live? very live. Or, um, and like any tech, the first couple of years, the jumps were so big. Each six months, we were you know, vastly improving the system. Now we're five years in, and uh, the tweaks that we make are very small. You know, what our system looks like, what we're constructing today compared to two years ago is it looks almost identical, which means that I think that we're coming up to an efficient system. Um, and it's it's ready to scale because before you basically used a tractor or or some machinery to move them right that's the there's this beautiful line on your website and they they all get moved once a day one shot they're next to each other not touching each other obviously but there's an and having machinery used to these are not the skeleton style pens where you can just move them by yourself right. obviously you need some machinery and that's the part you've automated now yeah and then also gone so so we started in a uh, hundred bird system skeleton system hand pull Moved to the 600 bird system, tractor pull, which was uh, like a greenhouse on skids. And then we moved up to this 6,000 bird system that has its own, you know, 26 electric motors that drives itself to a new spot every day. That's more than just having to drive a tractor out there, which is time consuming and annoying. It's a compaction on the field, but it's just so much more efficient to push a button or to have a timer move these birds automatically. We can move them a lot slower. That's a huge advantage. Um, we can put in automated feeding, automated watering, automated climate control, because you're spreading those costs over 6,000 birds as opposed to 600. So it looks much more like a, call it like a conventional poultry house just on wheels that moves itself every day. So I think we've taken a lot of cues from the very smart people in conventional poultry, try to take all the good stuff from their system and essentially mobilize it to where it can move, to, move itself to fresh pasture every day. It kind of try to take the best from both worlds. Now we have a system that I think is really scalable and it can be deployed, um, to be honest, all over the world, although we're like hyper-focused in the U.S. right now. 
Um, and so I think the next five years will look like us deploying capital, um, taking down, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of acres at a time and, and, uh, developing this poultry system. So it'll honestly look like much of the same for the next five years, expanding into retail, probably developing some, some food service business, but really focused on 60 to 80% of our business being breaking into, um, aligned retail partners that already have the customer that's looking for this. Like I don't think educating the customer on what we do is a very smart thing um, from like a capital perspective. So you want to find people that already understand what we're doing and they're already looking for it, you know? And on the feed side, are you dreaming about anything there? Are you working on anything to, to make it, more regenerative what are, are or is that they just too complex no 100 percent. it's another thing where I'm, i'm proud of our partnership with purdue so they are really looking to lead within the feed side as well half of their business is actually uh, in the grain side so corn soybean wheat sunflower um, and they put up a lot of acreage they have over a million acres um, under impact and their largest organic in the country so shifting from organic to regenerative is not integrating some chickens yeah yeah 100% a lot of these guys are already doing cover crops a lot of them are already doing you know rotations integrating with animals I don't see as much that's an area I really want to see expanded um, no-till is really popular in the southeast already so trying to explain that and, uh, and see more of that being done that's definitely on the I'm not going to say dreams I'm going to say on like the uh, action items list for us yeah And then what, what kind of pushback do you get? Do you get it from the regen space as this is not regen enough? Do you get it from um, maybe also the plant-based and, and, and other space? What, what's the main, main pushback you get when you're uh, loud on LinkedIn, let's say? What I've been surprised about is I've gotten very little pushback on this sort of like partnering with Big Ag. I think anybody who's been in this space for a little bit realizes how actually critical it is that those of us in the grassroots regenerative space, if we get the chance to help big ag move the needle that we probably should do it. And if you've been in the game for more than like five years, I find very few people saying, Oh, that's a terrible move. You shouldn't have done that. You sold your soul. I think that there were some of those comments initially. And now that I've been helping them for three and a half years and I'm really proud of what we're doing. And we've been very transparent about what our systems look like. I hear very little um, pushback. The plant-based space, I mean, good luck pushing back. You know, I kind of say like everybody's seen all the holes in those systems and uh, the authentic folks within there are willing to admit their shortcomings with the monocrops and with the, you know, hardcore kind of processed food side. The authentic people within there, I think, see a future where plants and animals are in a symbiotic relationship and helping each other out. So um, I don't see as much pushback there. Maybe the pushback is I feel the need to call out a lot of the greenwashing that I see and I hate to do it. It's not really my personality to be like divisive in that way. But I do think the one thing that will end this regenerative movement faster than anything else is the kind of preponderance of a bunch of greenwashing. And when, when consumers realize that half of what's called regenerative is probably bullshit and just marketing. Um, it seeds a lot of distrust and a lot of skepticism within consumers' mind. 
And uh, I just, I really feel the need to call it out when I see it. And a lot of people don't like that, you know? No, absolutely. And then what do you see? I mean, you had a successful exit and, and what would you say? We, I often like to ask this question in, to imagine, let's say we're in a theater and, and the room is full of, of financial world people, uh, either investing their own money or other people's money. What would you tell them, obviously without giving investment advice, but what would you tell them to, to walk out of the room after the evening and, and go dig a bit deeper or go and talk to that or go and look there or go and, and explore uh, this part of the sector more? Uh, let's say they get they get out of the room excited, and then let's give them some direction. What would you tell them? Um, I mean, I, I'm writing my own checks in the space now with my own money, so I'll tell you how I'm evaluating deals for myself. You know, um, a, an over kind of obsession with philanthropic, slow, patient capital. I actually don't know that it's that helpful for the space. I think being able to evaluate businesses on sound fundamentals. Um, I think, I think it's actually very healthy, like traditional evaluation of the business model, the grit of the founder kind of mission, um, but also just digging into the balance sheet, the P and L and the, the cash flows, like understanding these businesses is really important. I do think after being inside of a large, um, agribusiness for the last, like almost, you know, four years now it's near, and I love Purdue, like I really enjoy working for them, but I think it's near impossible for some of these big companies to innovate and create brands and create meaningful strategies um, to do regenerative in-house. And so as long as the consumer's demanding regenerative and they're demanding kind of um, something new, I think there's going to be a plethora of opportunities for exit with solid sound companies that are doing something really unique and different. Um, to work with some of these bigger companies because I don't think that they can develop this stuff internally. They're going to have to acquire it and buy it from the outside and to buy these talented teams. Um, but it's largely it comes back to consumer demand, you know, and that's why the greenwashing stuff really scares me. And I think unwise investors, unsophisticated investors, they're going to be tempted into deals where the founders are saying all the right things and they're talking about regenerative this and that, and they're actually not doing anything that unique. Um, and you can get suckered into essentially investing in, re in conventional ag rebranded. And the problem with that is the big ag companies are going to see right through that. And they're not going to want to acquire those businesses. So it's like having this radar for greenwashing is super important for, um, for investment. And basically it sounds like a, a common friend of ours, Anthony Corsaro's region brands focus. Like this, this is a big space and it's going to be only bigger. And, Coming back to that point of the nutrient density side and the explaining or, or the storytelling or the sharing that piece with consumers, I feel like brands are uniquely positioned to do that. How have you approached that as one of the very few retail or let's say accessible in, in many, re many retail places, brands that is explicit about soil and regeneration? Uh, how, how has been that journey on, on, educating between brackets because it's always weird is educating consumer uh, yeah. or you said look we're focusing on the early adopter they don't need any education we'll get there when we get there uh it's a really good question i think um we've taken the approach that we shouldn't rely on any third-party certifications for anything and so there's all these great yeah i love land to market i think what they're doing is amazing but 
I've not relied on them. Like we partner with them, but they don't go on pack. They don't go on our like list of. What do you hey, mean when you say rely on them? It's the stamp on the packaging. Yeah, I think these certifications, third-party approvals, verifications, all these third-party things, um, we feel like we just need to tell our own story directly to our customers. That happens on social media. It happens on you know on our own website. It happens a tiny bit on pack, but you can only do a little bit on pack. And I see a lot yeah, of like space, yeah. brands that just list you know twenty third-party certifications, and it's like they lose they lose their impact when you when you list out a million of them. I remember what was it? Annie's Annie's had like soil matters or something, but that's a long time ago. Yeah, like what do you say in that tiny space you have? I hate that the packaging piece is as important as it is, but going into retail, it's something that I've learned. Um, you know, we work with Pearl Fisher, which is just this amazing graphic design company out of New York. And I think visually being able to tell the story through iconography and font and, um, and colors and, and all these like artistic things, I didn't want to admit how important it actually is. But dude, it's probably 50% of the game. Like it's 50%. I can of the see thing. you really enjoyed those meetings at the beginning. Oh, yeah. it's painful, dude. Like really, we're going to deal with uh, what direction the chicken's head is looking on the packet. Like, why does that matter? But uh, I've learned that evoking um, is way more important than, than explicitly saying and being able to catch somebody's eye and help them to understand a concept in the two, three seconds that you have in retail It's so critical. And so I'm really glad that we worked with Pearl Fisher and I think they did a great job on our brand. And you immediately look at that package and you think, okay, this is a, it's something different. I don't know what it is yet, but I know it's something different you know, on our pack. Instead of saying free range and organic and all the terms that you're used to, you see um, rotated daily and mobile coops as our headline two things. Nobody knows what that means. So it's like this huge risk that we took um, stepping out You see very few third-party certifications. So right away you go, wait, what, what is going on right here? And I think um, we do sell to early adopters. We'll probably sell to people who have a bit of a sense of what's going on. Um, but at the same time, we had to step way outside of the normal chicken marketing stuff to, um, to explain how we're different, you know? And, and coming to that connection, healthy soil, healthy chicken, healthy people, um, What do you feel is missing there? I mean, you've, you've shared the data, of course, in, inside the bubble on LinkedIn. Um, but what, what's the role of brands there? Or maybe there isn't to, to start explaining that. Or is it, look, flavor is, is, is a good proxy of, uh, um, of nutrient density. So, so let's not complicate our lives. Um, we always say like, yeah, well, all we're really doing is posting this stuff on our website and social media. And even LinkedIn for me has been a surprisingly, you know, the reach is like surprising. There's millions of impressions made monthly between those three channels. So between like our Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and our website, it's millions of impressions made um, every month. And so It doesn't sound like a big deal to be posting this stuff constantly and, and sharing it there, but it's actually, I mean, and, and we're showing it to buyers and early adopters and people that really care about this stuff. So I think that that actually is our strategy, even though it doesn't sound like a complete strategy, it probably is our strategy right now, showing them these more complicated, nuanced stories. And then also like really leading with transparency. 
you can go on our package on our QR code on pack. We'll take you to either a live feed from inside of our chicken coop, which is no BS. I mean, it's not a marketing shot. It's not one of our special coops for tours or something. It's like, we just put an iPhone running a live feed inside of the coop, you know, 24 seven, um, one day a week. Um, and it's not always what people think. They're like, sometimes people are like, oh, wow, that's a lot more birds in a space than I thought it was going to be. Oh, I didn't realize they have a roof over their head and they don't have sunshine hitting them 24 hours a day. You know, there's all these like sort of harder and nuanced stories, but we always just say it's the screw it marketing approach. I'd rather have you see exactly what we're doing and know exactly how we're doing it than be misled by some stupid photo shoot that we wanted to take some birds and stick them outside and take, you know, these like fake glamour shots of the chickens or something. So I think the transparency piece is really resonating with people. Either you love it and you're going to buy our birds or you hate it and you're not going to buy it. So I kind of like um, that transparency piece that we've been able to lead with as well. You know, And I want to be conscious of your time and ask a few quick, or depending, quick final questions. Um, what, I mean, you mentioned you're, you're writing your checks in, in the space as well. Um, but let's say you, you're actually managing a slightly larger portfolio or a slightly larger uh, investment amount, let's say a billion dollars. What would you focus on? Would it be the protein side, the automation side, the brand side, or completely different if you had, I'm not saying unlimited resources, but like a significant amount to put to work. I'm not looking yeah. for exact dollar amount. I'm just looking, where would you prioritize? What would be the, the sectors you would focus on? It depends what the uh, what the money's appetite was for like risk and return. If you had a family office money, I would fully, love to own fully flexible. Fully yeah. flexible. Patient capital, I would love to own ground, you know, ground and water that's being managed regeneratively. I think that that's an unbelievable long term investment. It's not going to get the 10x return that like a VC is going to need, you know, but if it's slow patient capital, I just think land being managed uh, with equity stake for these really you know, kind of high profile, like, or not profile, but high power regenerative managers. Um, I think that's going to be an unbelievable 20 year investment, you know, building soil health, producing good returns, like, you know, a healthy model for land management. I would love to deploy a bunch of capital under that type of management. Um, for the more traditional, like 10 year time horizon, kind of 10 X target venture capital stuff. I'm really passionate about the biomimicry technology. So tech that looks to nature as the lead and then tries to replicate that in like a more scalable way. That's what's really, really interesting to me. Um, brands are also really interesting to me. I'm writing, um, I'm an investor in white leaf provisions. I think that what they're doing like on the sourcing side in the, in the product side is really, really unique and special. You know, I think, I think that they've got uh, a lot of potential to grow. Um, but I think tech is super interesting when it's look at nature as the template. Now, how do we replicate what nature is doing? I mean, I, I, I feel like that's all we did with pasture bird in nature. Animals move. How do we get chickens to move? Because right now there is no solution to move a bunch of chickens efficiently. Um, vents, you know, some of these like automated kind of techs for moving cattle, anything that looks to nature is the solution and then figure out how to replicate that. I think that's super interesting and it will probably have as good of a chance of any as um, kind of these really high, solid, high returns. And then as a final question, 
if you had a magic wand and, and you could change one thing overnight, I have an idea what it could be, but uh, I will give you the, the complete power, one thing only, so really one thing, but what would it be in, let's say, the food and ag or, or the broader system change in terms of uh, sustainability and regeneration? But if you had a magic wand, what would you change? I'll, I'll be surprised if you're able to guess it, but maybe you will be able to. Um, I would end um, the grain subsidies. I would, I would just cancel them like today. And I think it would be, or phase them out over a very short period. I think that they skew so much of the ag that happens in our country. Um, I'm not an ag economist. I'm not like classically trained in that space. And I know it would come with a significant amount of short-term pain. Um, but where corn and beans are planted, where I think cattle should be grazing, the fake low price of chicken and pork in our country the um, the almost necessity to finish cattle um, in a feedlot on corn and soybeans. I mean, I think it all, I guess it goes away, but I think it's vastly improved with true pricing um, for grains. And right now this is a completely fake price that happens for grain in our country. And it totally bastardizes so many decisions that are made. I think um, I think millions of acres of corn and beans would go back into prairie and back into pasture land if prices were real. And I'm a major free market guy. I don't like this kind of idea of like salvation by legislation and the government needs to fix this and that. But I do think pulling back some of these ridiculous policies and incentivize bad behavior, um, it would go a long way. I think it's a perfect end to it, it's I wouldn't have guessed it was said something about make sure all animals that have to move, move. Um, but this, this sort of enables that. And, and it's not the first time uh, people have mentioned it here. I want to be conscious of your time. And thank you so much for sharing today. feels like we, we literally, as a chicken, just scratch the surface. Um, but there, there might be other moments. So thank you so much for what you do and what you have done. And of course, for coming here to share about it. Thank you, Cohen. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you liked this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.